All right, then. I guess it's time to go. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Kai is out today, but joining me instead is Marketplace's Janet Wynn. Welcome back, Janet. Thanks. I'm so glad back. It's good to be here on This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, where we answer listener questions. And if you have a question about the economy, business, or tech, send it our way. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART. So before we get into it, Janet, are you also flooded out in California? Yes, the storm has been hitting us hard. No flooding in your house, though, right? No, no flooding here, though. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, now we can get to the questions, the other questions. Cool. Uh, yeah, so let's get to our first question of the day. Hi, this is Mark Mathis from Torrance, California. My question is, with the cryptocurrency collapsed, can that be tax deductible next year or for this year? Make me smart. This is such an interesting question and one I imagine a lot more people are wondering than in the past, given just like how many people have been affected by this crash. So first, a little crash course on crypto taxes. In the U.S. tax system, cryptocurrency assets are considered property, and so they end up getting treated like stocks. So if you sell it at a profit, it gets taxed as capital gains or as income. But if you sell it at a loss, you might in certain circumstances, be allowed to take that loss at a deduction. However, if it is missing, like you suddenly lose access to your crypto, like a lot of these failed crypto exchange customers, <clears throat> FTX, uh, that's very different. So those losses are not considered tax-deductible events. They used to be before 2018, and you could claim a deduction on those losses due to theft or, or something like that. But when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed, that went away. There is an exemption if there's something like a Ponzi scheme and you're a victim of it and that's why you lose your crypto, but it's tough. And then there's also, I'm going to read this, a special provision in the theft loss rule, which was created after the Bernie Madoff scandal in 2008, that still allows you to write off if you're a victim, it still allows you that tax write-off if you're the victim of a Ponzi scheme. Now, for the write-offs that you actually can make and for the things that actually are taxable, I'm going to go to this example from Fidelity. Here we go. You bought Bitcoin at a $70,000 cost basis. Two months later, the fair market value of your Bitcoin position has dropped to $60,000. You use all of it to buy a Tesla. Your loss on this transaction is that $70,000 minus the $60,000, so your loss was $10,000. You might be able to offset that $10,000 of realized capital gains or $3,000 of ordinary income. It's complicated, which is why if you're not sure how you need to report your crypto losses or gains, but for most people, probably losses, uh, you should consult a financial advisor for sure. But really great question. <laughs> Always great advice. Go to an expert. And, you know, it's yes. been a rough past year for cryptocurrency. Overall, the crypto market lost a little over $2 trillion. 
And so I'm sure a lot of investors are going to have questions about their crypto investments when it comes tax time. Yeah, I wonder, though, like how much of that is those losses, not from just the value going down, but from just losing access to it. Because some of that money that you're talking about, those losses, is, you know, just the value of it drops so much, depending on what coin you're talking about. But others, it's like, oh, no, that money is just gone or that value is just gone. Okay, our next question is about the world's second largest economy. Hi, this is Joan from Bethesda, Maryland. I'm wondering if China is still considered a developing country, um, and if so, why? Please make me smart. Thank you. Great question. So for this one, we reached out to Marketplace's China correspondent, the great Jennifer Pack, to help us out, and here's what she said. So on one hand, China is dubbed as a strategic competitor to the U.S. You know, they're formidable, but on the other hand, they claim to be a developing nation. So, you know, which is it? Is China developing or a developed nation? And it turns out the World Trade Organization says there's no standard definition for a developing country and members can declare which one they are, but other members can challenge this. And China's designation has been challenged. However, you know, one argument that China is using to kind of bolster this idea that they are a developing country is that it points to its GDP per capita as an indication. And if we go by the United Nations Human Development Index, China does lag behind the U.S. by a lot. Um, But by other measures, the World Bank also classifies China as an upper middle income economy. Um, However, Jennifer says it's tough to speak of China in averages, as it always is when it comes to the economy, and especially with China because of the sheer size. She says if you go to megacities along the East Coast, the cost of living can sometimes be, you know, on par or even above New York or L.A. But if you drive a few hours away or go to remote areas in central or southwestern China, there are villages that only had proper flushing toilets in recent years. Yeah, it's so hard when there's um, such, you know, income disparities, although I will mention I did a story a couple of years back about a community just 70 miles outside of Washington, D.C. here that also did not have flushing toilets or access to running water. Uh, So (laughs) we're not as as different as we would like to be in that particular point. Um, But there are real perks, you know, in terms of global trade and and global regulation to being identified as a developing nation as opposed to a developed nations in terms of sort of what you can get away with when it comes to global trade. So it makes sense why China would want uh, in many circumstances to hang on to that designation. (laughs) Those are great points. And next is another question about financial investments. Hi there. I'm Jennifer and... Now we live in Oregon, but we did live in Texas. What I'm trying to figure out is how ESG is causing so much trouble to Florida and Texas, essentially. I don't understand why the states are so upset about ESG ratings. It's just another scale, isn't it? Make me smart. So this requires a little bit of unpacking. So first of all, ESG is an acronym, obviously. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And this is basically a label or an investing strategy where investors 
take a company's long-term impact on those three things into account when they're deciding whether or not they want to invest in it. So if you are polluting the environment, you're terrible to the employees, and you're destroying the community that you're in, even if you make a lot of money for investors based on some ESG ratings, maybe somebody would decide we're not going to spend money to invest in your company or put your company in our portfolio. On the other hand, if you treat your employees well and you try to be as you know green and environmentally friendly as you can and, you know, you do nice things in your community and, and, you know, don't like downtrod on everybody around you, you know, then you might be a better investment than others. Companies get ESG ratings from different groups and it's sort of a way for a third party to verify how they're performing on these terms relative to other companies. And so let's say you only want to invest in companies that are committed to these ESG or sustainable business practices, then those ratings might be helpful uh, in determining which companies you're going to pick. So then we get to uh, Jennifer's actual question. Why do some Republican politicians like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott have a problem with this? In some places, the GOP says that the nation's biggest money manager, the biggest banks, are putting ideology above financial returns and that that's not what they're supposed to do. In particular, they like to call it the woke climate agenda. And so they're trying to penalize some of these companies that are really leaning into ESG standards. Uh, for example, Florida recently pulled $2 billion in state assets from BlackRock, which has advocated for some of these ESG investing policies. And both Florida and Texas are proposing legislation that would bar state money managers from even considering ESG criteria when they're making investment decisions, say, for a pension fund or a bond or, or something like that. That being said, there aren't really uniform standards across the board for what people and companies mean when they say ESG because people have different standards of what's sustainable and what counts as a social good or what good governance looks like. So different groups have different metrics, data, report and technology to help companies track these ESG efforts, but it's often inconsistent. So let's just say, you know, you want to be a company that gets a high rating on treating your workers well, but you're a clothing company and you source a lot of your clothing from, you know, a country that doesn't necessarily let you track very well how they're treating their workers in the factory that's making your stuff. It's going to be really hard for you to claim that you're treating all your workers well when just the people in the U.S. are doing well. So anyhow, there are a lot of climate activists who worry that ESG funds, these uh, mutual funds and, and other groups that lump these companies that are supposedly good on ESG ratings when they lump them together, that they end up doing a lot of greenwashing and kind of overstating the impact. A good example, we mentioned BlackRock earlier and how, um, you know, Florida is pulling money out of it. But BlackRock is also a huge investor in fossil fuel companies. So and you'll definitely hear from fossil fuel companies saying that they're leaning into ESG, do trying to do 
better than they used to, but it's still, you know, a fossil fuel company. So why? <laughs> that was a very long answer, Jennifer. But why are they having problems with it? Why do the leaders in Florida and Texas have a problem with it? They think it's too woke. That's a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. You've done some reporting on ESG, uh, haven't you, Jana? Yeah. Um, you know, ESG investing has always kind of struck me as just a bit of a paradox. You know, if you want to be environmentally friendly, you want to encourage more sustainable habits when environmental investing is still kind of about encouraging growth. You know, you want these companies to be profitable. Mm, yeah. Okie dokie. Next question up is in an email from Anthony. Anthony says, given that the tight labor market is raising wages and contributing to inflation, why aren't we talking about increasing the flow of immigrants to help fill job vacancies? Question I've asked as well. Same. And so some economists, including Fed Chair Jerome Powell, have brought this up. Um, in a recent speech, Powell said a high number of deaths during the pandemic and low levels of immigration to the U.S. could account for over a million missing workers in the U.S. And Axios reported that some of Biden's top economic advisors are concerned that the low levels of immigration are partly responsible for the tight labor market we're seeing right now. And since the beginning of the pandemic, immigration to the U.S. has really slumped, and that's partially thanks to Title 42. And so that is a policy enacted by Trump that allows the U.S. to turn away migrants at the border without a chance to seek asylum, citing public health reasons. The Supreme Court has kept Title 42 in place for now, but even if it ends soon, it would not likely mean a big change in the labor force because it usually takes a year if not longer, for asylum seekers to get work permits and start working. And the current administration will likely push immigration reform this year, but reaching a compromise in the very politically divided House. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, the Census Bureau says net international migration to the U.S. is very close to pre-pandemic levels and expected to rebound soon, if not already. And that's because of loosened travel restrictions. And some economists also say immigration-related processing, so stuff like visas, has picked back up after consistent delays during the pandemic. Right, because things basically shut down when it came to visa processing, you know, for a big chunk of the pandemic. And that definitely had a big impact on the tech sector. But another sector that's really hurting as a result of the decline in uh, immigration and, and visa processing in the agriculture industry. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of folks have been really concerned about food inflation and a lot of, you know, big food producers have been complaining for years that they need more workers in that space. And a lot of those workers are people who would like to immigrate to the country or even to come in on temporary work visas and are not able to. So, uh, you know, <laughs> immigration reform is kind of this big thing that uh, they really just have not been able to navigate in Congress. Um, you know, since Kai's not here, I'm going to go optimistic on politics. <laughs> um, you know, for years and years and years, we've been talking about an infrastructure law and everyone's like, oh, it's never going to happen. It's never going to get passed. 
And an infrastructure law was actually passed last mm-hmm. year. Uh, granted, our the political dynamics looked a little bit different. But who knows? Let's be optimistic. Maybe we'll actually get meaningful immation reform that that helps everybody out. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to do that. What do you think? (laughs) Speak it into existence, as they say. Uh, All right. On that note of probably false optimism, (laughs) let's wrap it up for today on this. What do you want to know? Wednesday. Thank you so much, Janet. Kai and I will be back tomorrow with more news and some smiles. And we always love your suggestions for the make me smiles. And uh, we'll hopefully hear from you and see you and connect with you in a audio, digital kind of way. And if you've got a question that's been on your mind about business, tech, and the economy, call us and leave us a voicemail. We're at 508-827-6278 or 508-UB-SMART. You can also send us an email. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad. Ben Tolliday and Dan Palmeiras composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Bridget Bridget Bonner is the director of Fantasco Levy is the executive director of Disney. Look at that timing, Janet. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> <laughs>